0: We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers. And we get real experts to come in and talk about it. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Paul Thompson is Vice President of US Government Affairs at Intel. He comes from the US House of Representatives, where he worked on the Homeland Security Committee. In this episode, we talk about the cost of semiconductor fabs, implementation of the CHIPS Act, Intel's goals for the future, and regaining US semiconductor leadership. We were talking about the cost and the complexity of a fab. And I'm not sure people always realize that when I was talking to a group of senators uh, three years ago about the CHIPS Act, I told them, think in terms of aircraft carriers. And that's probably not enough these days. So what are we talking about when you're talking about building a fab?
1: You're talking about building a manufacturing facility that is the size of three football fields, ones that cost anywhere between 10 and $15 billion per facility? And and normally when, when a company like Intel builds fabs, we build them in packs, right? So we build them two at a time. And so it, it, from a manufacturing standpoint, it is like an aircraft carrier. It is just enormous in terms of its size and scale. And not only in terms of the physical structure, the IT uh, systems, the equipment that support it, the engineering systems below to, to make all of that. That work it is pretty significant in terms of their scale, and hence why they cost billions of dollars to manufacture.
0: And so, after a very long rollout, Congress funded the Chips Act, which is good. How's it going? What's the, what's the Chips Act doing for Intel?
1: Well, we think it's going well, and you know, proud to be part of an accomplishment that had bipartisan support and, frankly, pushed by two administrations. I think the good news is, is the Commerce Department has engaged with stakeholders, has put out guidance in terms of how they're looking at the program and and trying to shape it. You know, obviously, there's some concern anytime, you know, an agency gets that amount of money trying to execute in a relatively short period of time is something that we're paying close attention to. Intel was very front footed with essentially announcing forty three and a half billion dollars in capital investment over the next five years to get greater manufacturing capacity back in the United States. And so trying to ensure that the CHIPS Act grants can go out in a way that aligns with with our capital expenditure strategy is going to be really critical. And the other thing I think we're paying very close attention to from the department is how they're going to establish some of the CHIPS R&D efforts. One of the things that does not get talked about as much as it should is the fact that this is going to be a really concentrated, focused effort for our industry to really look at solving industry-wide R&D or breakthrough challenges that'll allow us to maintain our technological edge and be able to continue the innovations to push Moore's Law beyond where it currently is. What kind of R&D are we talking about, and are you guys doing it, or is it universities, or who? So it'll likely be a partnership of a variety of stakeholders. Obviously, we'll be looking at things in terms of materials in terms of one of the things that we'll we're, we're start to think that is there a way to solve is obviously governments have concern about the use of PFAS chemicals and thinking through can you use an NSTC to kind of start to fund you know, some NSTC. partnership, uh, the National Semiconductor Technology Center, sorry, okay. um, and can you use some of those dollars to partner with universities and, and other industry st- stakeholders to come up with replacements, right, it's going to be things like that that are unique to, to our industry that this effort will hope hopefully be able to leverage in terms of just not only that, but even like the next things that you can glean from a process technology standpoint, for example, using lithography to see kind of what the next frontiers are in terms of a semiconductor process technology.
0: What are the problems that commerce has to fix for the Chips Act to work? This is a test. It used to be that you couldn't say industrial policy without having people scream and jump out the window. But now that we finally got it, what does commerce have to do to make it work?
1: They're gonna have to one, implement the law, right? And I think one of the things, we focus a lot about the money, but there are a lot of programmatic things that the department's gonna have to get up and running relatively quickly then you're going to have to basically take the application and review process and be able to turn around on that quickly enough to show the investments that are being made are actually going to be able to be supported. And then you're doing that at a time when you are also going to need to support robust workforce development programs, right? Because in that sense, if you look at Intel, in terms of what we've announced in Ohio, Arizona, and New Mexico, we're slated to hire 7,000 people to work in those different fabs. Two-thirds of those individuals will not require a college degree. So how do you support the partnerships with Community colleges to get the workforce in place, and that doesn't even include the construction workforce needed to build the fabs. Is going to be the other challenge that I think Commerce is paying close attention to. It's actually one of the things that Congress did in addition is to spend about two hundred million dollars or so to try to help also spur those workforce development efforts, know ensure we have the talent to fill the fabs. So that was actually
0: one of the questions
1: I thought about was, is everybody going to need a PhD? And you're saying no. No, no. Two thirds of our manufacturing workforce don't require PhDs. You do need an associate's degree of some kind and a technical background, but but I would argue the majority of the workers we're going to hire don't need college degrees.
0: Where does the workforce come from? Is it just people in the area? People, is it like the oil fields where people come in? <laughs>
1: yeah, a lot of it is folks from the local areas where we source. We generally have robust partnerships with our, our community colleges where we've been able to over time develop a good curriculum and partnership and getting people prepared to work. But given the need that we're now placing with our new investments, one of the things we've done is create what we call a quick start program. And we're doing this in Arizona. I'm in partnership with Maricopa Community College, and the idea is, is let's even have a two-week kind of starter course to see if people are even interested, right? Let's yeah. let's see if they're willing to spend some time and just learn about the industry, see potential paths for them, and by doing so, if they're willing to go forward, it's a nice feeder system to even look at people who normally wouldn't even think about working in the semiconductor industry.
0: Yeah, I, I don't see how anyone could turn down the opportunity to wear a bunny suit, but it's a probably a <laughs> matter of taste. Commerce has sort of a long timeline for doing this. Uh, to be fair, the bill started about three years ago, right, finally passed. Yep. And commerce is looking, what, at 2024 for a lot of this stuff? Or is, is that fast enough?
1: I think some of their guidance has shown they will, they will make some of these announcements in 2023. Right. I think, okay. uh, you know, the, the Congress gave them five years worth of funding. And so I do think that's the timeline that we operate under in terms of the grant program they're going to put forward. Yeah. You know, I think we have all expectations that, the, you know, the department and other folks in the administration have shown that, you know, for certain projects, if there's something that they can turn on quickly, I think they're going to do so. I think some of the newer green field, what we would call brand new sites where you're not doing an expansion, you know, the department has said those are going to take a little bit of time, but I think the expectation is in some cases, they are going to distribute grant funds by the end of the year. Secretary Armando is a former governor, and one of the things uh, she's had a reputation for is being able to develop and execute programs, and our initial sense of chips is this is no different. Hmm. Okay, that's good. So a lot of this will be at the state
0: level. As well as
1: the federal level well it's a combination right because what the law is looking at is part like you know the the department's going to look at state level support fortunately for us in the in the in our manufacturing sites we do have good state support particularly if you look at a state like ohio it really did not have a semiconductor industry and credit to the dewine administration for really working with the state legislature there to get something in place that will give us a really good competitive package as it relates to chips. But we've had the same support in Arizona and New Mexico as well. And look, I think the reason for this is is that there's been a strong recognition over the last couple of years, particularly highlighted by some of the supply chain challenges that COVID brought about, Mm. that semiconductors are truly an essential technology. And the value of that technology right now is priceless in terms of our ability to live in this modern society. And so it's very clear that I think governments understand not only that for that fundamental principle of the need to have this on American soil, but also that they play a role in in creating a competitive environment to land those investments, given the significant benefits that come with them. So maybe you could describe
0: for us Intel's supply chain because you guys are really a global company.
1: We are. Um, you know most of our our silicon is sourced in Japan right we send that back to the united states where you have very large and expensive semiconductor manufacturing equipment one of our primary tools is a what's called a lithography machine primarily made by asml which is a dutch company you take those chips those wafers and then you send them back out to to a packaging assembly and test facilities all over the world in our case we happen to have those in vietnam and malaysia Great. And so it is a global supply chain in terms of the manufacturing process, but if you look at the fab itself between the, the actual manufacturing equipment, the IT systems that monitor the health of that equipment, the chemicals and other engineering materials that are used to operate the fab, our supply chain is, is pretty extensive. If you look at a state like Oregon, where we've been for 40 years, where we do R&D and manufacturing, we have over 500 suppliers.
0: Why do you think the U.S. lost share uh, when it comes to fabs? Uh, if You've got a, a big supply chain. It's global. But the thing that people have focused on maybe a little too much is
1: share of fabs. Why did the U.S. fall behind? And is that really a problem? Well, the reason we've seen the, the drop in, in manufacturing share is Honestly, I think foreign nations, particularly in Asia, put a premium on attracting this investment, right? They drove incentive policies, whether it be tax, direct cash grants, to attract those investments. The United States did not match that. You could even argue Europe did not match that, right? 30 years ago, Europe made 44% of the world's semiconductors. The U.S. made 37%. Last mm-hmm. year, it was 12% for the U.S. and 9 for Europe. So it completely reversed. Right. And, and incentive policy, the term that has always been debated in Washington industrial policy, played a very large role in that. I think what's now happened is, is people recognize because of the ubiquity of the semiconductor being in so many different things and the importance, not just from an economic security, but a national security standpoint, having the you know greater supply chain resiliency trump the need for supply chain efficiency. And, and so I think what we're now seeing is supply chain resiliency is going to be more rewarded, where, you know, since the advent of the shipping container, you were generally more rewarded for supply chain efficiency. Although I thought you guys flew your stuff. Is that not right? We, we, we do fly a lot of it. There are some parts that still do come through through the <laughs> port, but I can promise you, you have to fly an EUV machine, a tool generally you can't put in a 40-foot container. Sure. Intel was or is,
0: I guess, one of the three big companies that do this, Samsung and TSMC being the other. And uh, Intel has a plan for, I'm being very polite, a plan for renewal. <laughs> 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 what what does that look like? I mean, it's good for us to have a national champion. I'm a big believer in national champions.
1: But yeah. what
0: are you guys thinking?
1: Uh, so, I'll answer that two ways, Jim. I would say the first is we're going to regain technology leadership. Pat Gelsinger, when he took over as CEO now two years ago, really made a push to say we're going to develop five new semiconductor nodes in four years. And you know what? We're doing it. You know, I think our first node, Intel 7, is in high volume production, Intel 4, which is The next one in line is going to begin its manufacturing process. And then some of our more leading edge products like our Intel 20A or 18A, we're starting to tape out what we call the fab space to get those ready as well. So we're on track with that. The other thing I would say is, look, unlike others, we never really left our manufacturing. Our manufacturing base has remained, right? We have manufactured in Oregon for 40 years. I think over the last two years, we've celebrated a 40-year anniversary in Oregon, a 40 year anniversary in Arizona, and another one in New Mexico. And I just make that point to say, in addition to the technology development, we are putting our efforts in to reboost the supply chain in the United States and increase that manufacturing share.
0: How much of the competition comes from uh, fabulous people like Arm? Uh, is that a big uh...
1: Well, so Intel's one of the, the few IDMs left, meaning we're an integrated design manufacturer where we design and manufacture our, our uh, chips. So we 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 face stiff competition from a variety of companies, Qualcomm, AMD, ARM, NVIDIA. That's why I think that the premium on regaining that technology leadership and having products that can compete are really important. We just had a big one in the in the data center space, you know, what we call our Sapphire Rapid product that we just released. And so we recognize that where the competition is. and look, at the end of the day, the, you know the per industry projections show that semiconductors will be a trillion dollar market over the next ten to fifteen years as everything continues to become more digital. And so I think we are laser focused on regaining that leadership, and I feel pretty confident that five years from now we'll be able to take the Pepsi challenge with anybody in terms of the quality and and capability of our products.
0: How much of this is focused on what people call the cutting edge of chips, and how much of it is focused on legacy
1: chips? Great question. So a lot of our efforts to regain leadership is focused more on the leading edge, but you know we're also recognizing that one of the things that that Pat has announced that that, that is a key part of our future is we're going to become a foundry, right? Meaning we're going to be a pure manufacturer, similar to a TSMC. One of the things we're looking at doing it's public knowledge. We're looking to Purchase tower semiconductor. They generally tend to make more legacy semiconductors. So, you know, if that's successful, we'll not only have the leading edge, we'll be able to also offer products, you know, as it relates to more legacy chips too. And, you know, one of the things that I've now learned and I think the public's now learning is all chips aren't created equal. In some ways, you know, the things that have created the shortage were much more tied to autos and medical devices. And those tend to be our older chips. So we're going to be able to, I think, have the whole spectrum to be able to provide end to end from, from legacy to leading edge. I was
0: never a big believer in the chip shortage. And some of that was because a friend of mine is a wholesaler. And so I know what, uh, (laughs) I I know what the car companies did, but, and I also never was too worried about glut because the demand is always there. So you can, you can make a prediction chip
1: shortage over, (laughs) I think in some parts it is, but the expectation is I do think on some of the more legacy chips, it was still gonna persist for about another year or so. You could argue the demand fluctuations in the last two years have been pretty dramatic. Mm-hmm. So I'll just give you an example. I mean, when I when I joined Intel now almost two and a half years ago, there is a 10 and a half year high for PC demand. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so now what we're managing is, you know, the challenge of some of that to drop off because, you know, we're now at a point where all of the technology people needed to work or educate themselves remotely, they have.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. And so the, it's it's been pretty wild from from that standpoint. But at the end of the day, like a couple of things happened, right? I mean, there was going to be some projected of a small shortage pre-COVID because more things are becoming digital. You need to produce more chips. The industry has spent a lot on R and D and design, not necessarily on manufacturing. and And then what happened is COVID just accelerated that like like four times as much, to where now you had to ramp very quickly to try to try to get that production. So I would say it's a mixed bag, depending on what kind of chip you produce. But but at the end of the day, the expectation is over time, demand's not going to completely slow down, and you're going to need more production. Just one small example, the auto chips was such a focus. In Washington, so right now, semiconductors comprise of about four percent of a car. In 2025, that number uh, by value—that's right—it goes to 12 percent. By the end of the decade, it goes to 20. Mm -hmm. Right, and so that's just the automobile. That's not going to change, whether it be PCs, your TVs, as everything becomes more digital and connected. And so, while things are a little challenging now, the the long term shows that that the need to, to produce more chips is gonna grow, which means you need a lot more manufacturing capacity than our industry has right now. Where does China fit into this?
0: Because they have a couple companies that are pretty good, you know, SMIC and and why? And what is it, YTMC, YMSC, so Yangtze, y- whatever, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. They have a couple strong companies, but they have a lot of people in this space and a lot of money. So how does China affect your calculations?
1: Well, I think the way that they affect our calculations, we view them as a key market. We Mm -hmm. view them as a large consumer of of semiconductors. And we recognize, because I think this is what drove Congress to move on something like chips, that Mm -hmm. it is a priority for China to increase its manufacturing share of semiconductors. And they're willing to make significant investments to make that happen. So competitively, it's one of the critical reasons or critical needs for chips the CHIPS Act, was to basically counterbalance that. But I think there's a strong expectation that they are going to continue to prioritize ways for them to be a player in the industry. I know that in some ways, there's a strong, robust debate in Washington over the best way to deter that. We've lived through that in some ways through the CHIPS debate and through other policies related to export controls. But with that said, I think you know we are on a path to ensure that not just China, but I would just say, geographically that while Asia is going to always remain a, a key center for, for semiconductor manufacturing and R&D, I think Europe and the United States will, will hopefully boost their levels in a way where the supply chain is balanced and can withstand any kind of geopolitical disruptions. How important is China to you
0: guys as a market? I mean, where does it fit in? Uh, the, it's just, yeah,
1: we're
0: going to go ahead, yeah. go ahead. here. He, he said it was about 20%.
1: It's about 20 to 25% of our, our global revenue year to year. And it, it's a key market. I mean, it's one where obviously as much like America in some ways, as you know, the world goes more digital, that means it also is going more, more digital in China and the consumption of technology products will play a key role in us being able to provide key technology for that. Now, obviously, we don't do things uh, afoul of federal regulations or kind of current policy sure. as it relates to licensing and export controls. But it's a, it's a key market, right, as a consumer. Right? And, yeah. and being able to support that is significant. And it's not the fact that China is just important. The revenue that we gain from access to the China market. It's what's used to pay for, or help pay for the $43.5 billion of investment in manufacturing that we're doing in the United States and the 15 or so billion dollars that we spend on research and development in this country.
0: So when I used to talk to the people at the White House about this, I always said that, you know, cutting off Huawei from 5G made a lot of sense because they were completely dependent, not just on you guys, but on other people. But that we should look for a way to preserve older generations. And that seems to be going away, you know, the stuff that goes into 4G or 3G. What do you think of the recent
1: changes on Huawei? Well, I, I think, look, I think we understand what the government's national security objectives were. And I think it's a key point in that. You know, one of the things that we've articulated to um, both the Hill and the administration is you want to maintain. You know, the our government has leverage on their dependency on our products, right? And it allows policy, like what as it relates to what happened with Huawei, to to be effective. You know, I think what's I think it's not completely gone right. I think if you look at the Chips Act and what what the administration and Congress did by basically putting some framework around what kind of investments would Would be allowed going forward as a recipient of chips act i think it does have a right balance of not allowing some ways china to to progress on in in technology areas of concern to the u.s government while at the same time recognizing on some older nodes that don't really have a national security application that you still want to be able to serve and sell within that china market you're so smooth that i think we've we've covered everything have we missed anything what should we cover that we didn't talk about I think the one thing that thematically we should remember, in particular in these interesting times in, in politics in in Washington, is for all the divisiveness that we generally read about and see, this was one area where in a relatively short period of time, members of Congress in both parties and two administrations came together and the government did the right thing yeah, for I the think- future of this country.
0: It's easy to overstate the divisiveness sometimes. and. In talking to people on the hill, you—I don't know if you're hearing the same thing. They—they they know that the voters in 2024 are going to be looking at scorecards, and so they want to see people put uh, points on the board.
1: No, I think that's right. And and look, I mean, I'll—I'll I'll just leave you with this story because I'll—I'll never forget it. <clears throat> we went through a pretty extensive process to select the site that became Ohio, mm-hmm. and I will never forget being in a theater in Licking County, Ohio, a um, little over a year ago, where Pat made the announcement with with Governor DeWine and Lieutenant Governor Husted, and then the de- delegation was there. And the feeling of pride in that room, that that kind of manufacturing was coming to the Midwest, was something that I wish more people got to see, because it was that special. What are you guys doing in Ohio? So if you go to Licking County, which is little northeast of columbus in 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 farmland we are building two semiconductor fabs and one of the interesting things about the state while we have about 150 suppliers in ohio Mm -hmm. ohio really doesn't have a semiconductor ecosystem so that is now going to be built and it's going to be developed across the state and one of the other things we're doing is obviously from a workforce development standpoint we have to get folks in the state ready to to come work in the fabs. We're spending about $50 million over the next couple of years in partnership with the community college system, the universities from across the state, right? So yeah, is Ohio State a partner? Yeah. Is Miami of Ohio a partner though, or Ohio University? Yeah, because we want to make sure that the entire state can be developed in a way that provides talent for us. And so in some ways, it's pretty amazing. It's our first new greenfield site in over 40 years. But one of the things that we know we get with Ohio is we're within 150 miles of like, let's say the major big 10 engineering schools. So not just Ohio State, but Michigan, Illinois, Purdue. And so when we started to look at it from that standpoint, and the fact that the state had all the other kind of environmental things that we need in terms of space, water, reasonable energy prices, it really just clicked. And I, I i would even admit we were we knew it was going to be big. We didn't anticipate how big it was going to be in terms of the positive reaction. Hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, I think the the workforce part and the university
0: part is something that doesn't always make the story. Yeah, I think we pretty much covered everything we need to cover. You were great. I mean, you weren't one of those guests I had to torture to get
1: answers from. <laughs> I I have passion about this one. It's, uh, (laughs) we're in the middle of doing something really special and, and it's just, it's an honor to be a part of it.
0: Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.